following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 5, verse 1, and Haggai 1, verse 1 through 13. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of the hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, sometimes I don't know what to do with myself in between all these pieces. I'm sitting back there like a weirdo. Um, let's pray, and we'll dig into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us, that you, you give us your word, something that we can pick up, something that we can put our eyes on, and expect for you to meet us in the midst of this this morning. And we pray, God, that even in the congregations of the saints, that this would be true, that you would speak to your people that our ears would be open to hear, our hearts would be soft to receive this word that you have for us through the word of, of the prophet Haggai, through the work of Ezra. We ask, God, that we would see, that you would show us how this really digs into our own life and, and work out the implications of that in the gospel this morning. And so I pray that you would help me to think clearly, um, 
that my mind would think your thoughts, not my opinions, that the word of God would be saturated, that, that I would speak with precision this morning to your people, that my, my words would not be muddled and meshed, that they would be clear so that your sheep would hear your voice, that your people would hear the voice of the Lord as coming through me a conduit. And I, 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 can't, even, I can't even begin to, to, to grasp why I have this spot or why I'm here to preach, but I pray, God, that you would use me a vessel uh, as a conduit to speak to your people, that the church would be built up. She would become a more beautiful version of what she is meant to be, and this would be glorifying and pleasing to you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. A few times a week, uh, my wife Becca and I, we spend uh, a little bit of time just chit-chatting after the boys get laid down uh, for bed. We talk about logistics, talk about family life, what's going on, um, our missional community, what's going on there, and, and process the stuff that God is working on with us. I love these talks. Uh, I find great encouragement in them. God has given me a very godly wife, um, and she helps me in a lot of ways. Um, but there are some times that I'm not sure Becca enjoys these conversations as much as I do because I have this tendency where mid-thought, I just trail off for a minute. The conversation is going. I've ditched her, it seems, at, at the beginning of the conversation. I've progressed this conversation in my head, and I space out a little bit and take in this detour, which can be often frustrating. Typically, what gets me out of that is the realization. Well, usually there's a look, like, are you kidding me? You're doing this again. Like, I'm still here, right? Or there's a, a chuckle or a laughter. I can't believe this happened, right? There's some sort of provocation. There's a little poke that I need to kind of come back to. It's like the kid who falls asleep in class and the teacher takes a textbook and slams it on their desk to give them that jolt. That's a lot of times what it feels like. And we experience this kind of thing where we sort of drift off for a minute, where we, we lose our train of thought, or maybe our train of thought progresses, but we've sort of missed the whole point of the conversation. We do this with our diet. You get going for a couple weeks, you love it, you're crushing it, and then all of a sudden, one slice of pizza turns into three, and then you're out. Do this with exercise. I've been doing this with tax prep over the last couple weeks, where I start working on it. And I think, man, I really should break this up over the course of the year instead of trying to do this all in one sitting. Yet every time I make that commitment to myself, I don't hold the commitment. I veer off with those plans. Do this with reading goals, with projects around the house. We have this, this tendency to start something and just sort of drift off. And what we need is a jolt. We need that little poke in the side to re-engage, to get back with it. And this is essentially what we're seeing here uh, in Jerusalem between Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5. God's people have drifted off on this mission. God sent his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild for himself a home where God himself would come and dwell. And through a series of events, they have drifted off mission. They've stopped working, they've stopped rebuilding, or rather they've, they've started rebuilding other things that were not necessarily the primary mission, and God provokes them. God gives them a little poke. And so what I wanted to do, to, to do today is highlight three things. I wanna show what happens what, when we drift away from God's mission, what we tend to drift into. 
We show this drift. I highlight this drift, the mission drift. Number two, I want to show you how God jolts his people. And three, the kind of response that God's people ought to have. And, and as we work our way through this, through the story of Ezra and, and jumping into Haggai, um, I want to show you how this really applies to us today. So if you're just joining us, We've been in a sermon series through the books of Ezra, which been away uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the book of Ezra, and the sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. And there's a lot of history that's going on in the backdrop of this story. And so let me just bring you up to speed very quickly what's going on. So way back, about 50 years before this story begins in the book of, of Ezra, God's people went through a season of unfaithfulness. They had a lot of bad kings that led God's people in a way that, was, that veered from the ways of the Lord, and God brought his judgment upon his people, and the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and to the, 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 the territory of Israel and started overthrowing the kingdom. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city walls, all of the structures. They come through and they just wreak havoc. So the city lies in ruins, and what they do, the Babylonians take the Israelites and take them into captivity 500 miles away from home. And it's in this period of Babylonian exile where they just sit and wait. They've got this homesickness. Well, some of them have a homesickness. The others, who have already been on the course of unfaithfulness, have just sort of indulged in that as they live in a, a very pagan society anyway. But in the midst of this, we see God stirring up. This is a cadence that we see multiple times throughout this story, that God, where people are lying dormant, where people are stagnant, God stirs up in the hearts of people. We see this first with King Cyrus, who is now the king of Persia, who overtook the Babylonian empire. God stirs up in the heart of this pagan king to send people back to rebuild for God a temple. And then God stirs in the heart of these mighty men of valor, these, these men who are culture makers, for them to return. And then God stirs up in the heart of the people who are still stuck back in Babylon to contribute and to give resources to this mission that God is calling his people into. And so we see a, a collection of people go from Babylon back to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding God's temple, a home for God. And they get started. They, they build an altar first, and there's a lot of worship sacrifices that are going on. It's this uh, incredible thing. And then they start laying the foundation to the temple. And right about then, the neighbors in Samaria kind of are picking up on what's going on. The city that was once desolate. Then Samaritans and the Jews are rivals of sorts, and this intensifies after this whole ordeal goes on. But they've been rivals. They've been in conflict with each other for a while, and they see this, this rebuilding project taking place, and they do not like it. They start... Um, causing disruption for the Jews who are back to rebuild. And it starts with this fear-mongering and disrupting the supply chain, and they're doing all kinds. They're discouraging them from building, just getting in their head and doing all of this stuff. And it really escalates to the point where they write a king, or write the king, who's the new king of Persia, a letter that says, you've got people here that are trying to revolt against you. If you let them continue building, they're going to establish this country. They're going to establish, reestablish their religion. And before you know it, you'll lose your power and your influence over this region. And you're not going to get the tax money that you need. 
all right? And so this makes the king fearful. It, it causes him to react to this whole thing. And he issues a decree where the work, the rebuilding on the temple and on the city walls must stop. Just straight up, over, right? This, this project is done. Now, they lose momentum here. The people of God, excited to come back. They've got worship just bubbling up in their hearts. They're excited to lay, this, lay the bricks and build this beautiful uh, uh, temple for God. And here with this decree, they lose momentum, just grinds to a halt. Now, this is what 2020 felt like. I felt like here in this church, the sort of slow grind to our halt. As we were coming up on year three or just wrapped up year three of this church plant, we were beginning to hit stride. We were living on mission. We were seeing all of the fruit of our labor sort of start to bud on the tree, and then COVID hit. And we're told, all right, two weeks to flatten the curve. You got to stop this. And that extended a little bit further. And so before you knew it, we had about a six-week stretch of where we were not gathering together. Our missional communities were on pause. It was all virtual Zoom stuff, which everybody knows now that's not fun, and that's really hard to do. We weren't together in the sanctuary to worship, to be under the preaching of the word and the liturgy and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together for the mutual encouragement of the saints. We were missing some of those vital pieces that God has given us so the church would just blossom in community and on mission. And right there, it felt like a huge blow to morale. All the normal work, the normal rhythms just sort of stopped for a bit. Now, this is, this is like what was going on back in Jerusalem when King Darius told them to stop what they were doing, except it was for a much longer stretch than six weeks. Now, when we read the last part of chapter four, which says, uh, of, of Ezra, which says that the, the work of God or the work of the people was ordered to cease. And we switched over to chapter five where we see them resuming once again. For us, as we read Ezra, it seems like only a couple of sentences. It's hard to tell the time domain that has elapsed, but we can tell from other sources within scripture and other references that we can expect that there was at least a year of stagnancy, a year where the building was completely stopped, if not up to 18 months or more, where this building project was at a standstill. And you can even expect that before that, there was just sort of a diminishing of the intensity and the vigor of the work where God's people sort of faded out and they started directing their attention to other things like we saw with building the walls rather than building the temple. And so when we come to this point and we see that the building has stopped, no longer are they building the temple for God, no longer are the walls of the city going up, we wonder, what are they doing in this time? And, and we know that there was not Netflix, there was not YouTube back then, so if you got downtime, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do to keep you busy? Well, Ezra doesn't really tell us that. In his story, he goes straight from chapter four to the work stops to chapter five where the, the prophetic word sparks up um, the work once again. But fortunately for us, he hyperlinks within this text when he says the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem. And then we see this response later on in verse two where they start to rebuild the house. This hyperlink takes us back to the prophetic word that God sent his people through the prophet Haggai. 
And later on, we'll see more from Zechariah. And so we have this fortunate opportunity here as we allow the, the church in Davenport, who's also preaching through Ezra and Nehemiah with us, where they took a detour last week. We get to take a detour this week into the book of Haggai. And so if you want to join me in flipping towards the back of the New Testament, it's, it's really well overpassed. It's very close to the beginning of the New Testament. Um, I think it's the, the third from the end of the Old Testament. We'll look at the, the prophet Haggai and see the insight to the, the demeanor of the people of God and the activity that they gave themselves to during the shutdown. So here we are, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say, the people say, the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is the attitude of the people. They're saying, hey, we've got all of this opposition that's been going on. We've got our neighbors that are trying to discourage us to keep us from building. We've got the king of Persia saying that we've got to stop. So, well, it just may not seem like this is time for us to do this work. And, and if we don't listen to the voice of the prophet, we might see that they, there's some validity to that thought. They might be actually right. That might be a true statement, that the time for them to build is too hard. The work is too hard. The, the timing is bad. But what the prophet Haggai does is he calls out this attitude that the people of God have. He calls out this poor response that they have to the opposition, which leads them to a place of resignation. Oh, well, this is hard. We've got this guy saying no. We've got them, you know, casting stones at us. I guess we better just kind of tuck our tails between the legs and, and let up on this. Now, when we face hard things, and most things that are worth doing will tend to be hard, we tend to have two responses when we are faced with opposition. The first one, and the ideal one, is to rise up. We find opposition, we rise up to it. Or the other one is to back down. Say so the, the, the opposition is too much. The, the, the current that we're working against is too strong. Now, one requires courage, and the other one exposes cowardice. Now, to rise up, the courage within us that God implants in us says that this is hard work, this is scary work, but I am pressing on with God's help because this is what he has called us to. See, we, we embrace the challenge. We see what it is, the fear that lies ahead, the big thing that's looming out there. We acknowledge it for what it is, but we move forward trusting God despite the circumstances that want to interfere with the work that we have. Courage presses on. We're cowardice tends to move towards resignation. It says, this is too hard. This is too big. I'm not good enough. I, I'm not capable enough. I, it's too overwhelming for me. And because of those, those lies that get implanted in our head, and actually, it, maybe that is true, that it, it is too big for you, but we're so short-sighted that we cannot see the power and the resources that God has made available to us to pray for them, to cling on to them, 
and continue moving on. And so we move towards resignation and quitting. Now, this is what we see. This is what we see in Jerusalem. We see this, the, the cowardice is being surfaced there. And I, and I would imagine, I, I, this, is my, this is my view of it, is that cowardice sort of lies dormant within all of us just requires the right circumstances to provoke it, to bring it right to the surface. And here we see this, this cowardice is brought to the forefront of the story, and they bail on, on the building project. But what we see is they didn't just quit building. They found a new mission to give themselves to, something that paled in comparison to the work that God had brought them out of Babylon to give themselves to. And this here is, is one of the blows of cowardice, that cowardice will always make you settle for a lesser cause. Oh, that's too big. That's too hard. I don't want to do it. Well, I can still keep myself busy with something that's less important, but at least I'm still doing something. And this is what we see in verses three and four. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This is God speaking to his people. Is it right for you to live in these wood paneled homes? to build for yourselves this nice little shanty, build a life for yourself, while God's house, God's temple, lies in rubble and ruin. He says, consider your ways. The people in Jerusalem, they stop working on God's home, this big project, this glorious project that God had called them into working with premium materials, gold and silver and fine stones and and some of the choicest wood that Lebanon had to offer. They're doing all of this beautiful artistry, massive slabs of stone, building this temple brick by brick, building a home for God, a place where God himself would come. His presence would dwell right there among his people. And instead of building that, instead of building a home for God, they shift to building a little shanty for themselves. Now, this is what we call mission drift, where God has given them a task. God has called them to a mission, and slowly and gradually, their focus starts to shift to something else. They drift into a different mission. And when mission drift takes place among God's people, what typically happens is we shift from being God-centered to being self-centered. We go from doing the work that God has called us to, to occupying ourselves with the things that honor and glorify and please God, to shifting it into something that will be more pleasing to me. Something, we, we tend to make it more about me than we make it about God. Now, this isn't something that just happened back in the day in Jerusalem. This is what happens within the church today. The church is susceptible to the same kind of mission drift. Now, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission? Like, we're not here to build a new temple for God. We're not about the physical structure, but there is a mission. When Jesus rose from the grave before he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, what we even just read in the baptism liturgy this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, 
Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. See, this is the mission of the church in the most general sense. I like to say it like this. The mission of the church is to disciple the nations into joyful obedience to Jesus. Which Paul says in Ephesians 5 looks like building up the church into maturity. Now, this takes place, this mission of making uh, of discipling the nations into joyful obedience to Jesus takes place at, at some of the most micro places into the biggest, most macro places. That it starts within the home. It starts with me. That I have to be a disciple of Jesus. I have a responsibility to follow Jesus, to make myself, uh, as a disciple of Jesus, to make myself carry into the disciplines that Jesus gives the church of community, of Bible reading, of prayer, of fasting, of, of, of solitude, these things that Jesus gives to the church to strengthen us, to help us grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And for me, when I take responsibility for myself, that the responsibility starts to inch its way outward. I take responsibility for my spouse. I see to it that they with me are walking step in step, that we are following Jesus together. And then with my children. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, to, to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. What are you doing? You're discipling people. And from there, it spreads to the church, your missional community family. Where are you making disciples? Hopefully, in the context of your missional community and, and the church at large. And it goes from there as we invest in mission efforts. Right now, we're sending a percentage of, 10% of our church's budget goes to discipling the nations both in our region and abroad. Where we're sending money to Clinton, Iowa, where there's a new church plant up there. My friend Nick Powell faithfully planting a new church there so more people would come to know the real Jesus. We're sending money so people in Clinton, Iowa could come to know the real Jesus. We send money to Acts 29, the church planting network that has its hand in, in uh, church planting in the United States and far beyond. We're mobilizing church planters to make Jesus known, to disciple the rest of our nation. And then far beyond that, we send in another chunk of our, our tithes and our offerings. We've got connections and relationship with Fishers of Men Ministry. Pastor Joshua Nagao, who's a Kenyan native who built this ministry, started with child sponsorships, moved into church planting, is working on ways. He's adopted a lot of the way that we do church here with our missional community model, our Sunday gatherings there, and implanted that over there. Not because we've got the great idea, it's because what the scriptures teach. And they're discipling the nations. Goes from the micro to the macro. And when we understand this, that the mission of God is to disciple the nations into joyful obedience to Jesus, and it starts in the home and moves into the church and then moves to the world, the realization that we ought to have is that every Christian is a disciple. And every disciple is meant to be a disciple maker. And the only way we say this, we get this from Jesus, plastered up on our, our door out there, or our wall out there, the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission as we go deeper and deeper into the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
See, as we live in community, as we live on mission, what we're doing is we are showing the love of Jesus to one another while we speak the truth of Christ to one another. Now, this mission that God gives the church is not an easy task. And it's very unpopular in this day and age. The culture says, hey, keep your head down. If you want to be a Christian, why don't you go ahead and keep that to yourself? Keep your head down and just like keep that to your living room, right? Keep it to your churches on Sunday morning. Just don't want to hear it. But the mission of God is to make Jesus known everywhere. The glory of Christ would permeate every square inch of the cosmos. And because it's an unpopular task, because it's difficult, because it requires more than just showing up to a gathering on Sunday morning or, you know, checking in on a small group once a week, it's an involved occupation that God gives us. It's an involved calling. When we face the opposition to this, we either rise up, we tap into the courage that God implants within us, or we back down from it. And oftentimes when we back down, maybe it's, it's because the cowardice is rising up. And, and other times, it's simply because we're just distracted, that we've lost sight of how glorious of a mission, how noble of a calling it is that God would place that on us as Christians to make the real Jesus known. And so what happens is that we tend to settle for less, just like the Jews back in Jerusalem Instead of building this glorious house for God, building their own little shanties, building this own little life for themselves, we do the same exact thing. We settle for less. We make our lives about something so minuscule in comparison to the glory of Christ. Whether it be our comfort, like, oh yeah, it's, it's really hard to do that. I, I'd just rather sit on my couch than, you know, meet up with guys and disciple them and have them press into my life. I'd rather sleep that extra hour on Tuesday mornings and go to Fight Club and be challenged and go deeper into my understanding of the Bible. We, we have that sense of comfort or, or security, right? Because if you think about it, following Jesus, it's like what Aslan says. Is he safe? He's not safe, but he's good. See, to follow Jesus means that you are going to have to take risks for the Lord, you're going to put yourself out there. You're going to make yourself vulnerable in a lot of ways, but the Lord will protect you. But will we make our concern about our own security or posterity or, or preservation, we will slowly pull away from the mission of God that he's called us into. Now, it can also be good things, things that are noble things, our family. Right? God has given us our family to steward and to, to, to disciple but what happens when I elevate the goodness of my family to a place of, well, I've got to make the, the family the thing that I am most devoted to? You, you see this idolization of the family where God takes the back seat and the family, the nuclear family is the priority and we give ourselves to our family and we do this and do this and it looks like good stuff. But we're neglecting the Lord. It can look like running around from sports and dance to other Hobbies that we just busy ourselves with in our family and we get so busy and distracted that our, our gaze gets taken off of the Lord. We lose sight of who he is and the mission he's called us to. We can do this with our own, our own career or our hobbies. That thing takes the driver's seat and just dictates everything that we do in our life. And when we do this, what we're doing is we are drifting into a self 
centered life. We go from this God-centered life to a self-centered life. Now, we don't start off at a God-centered life, but when we become Christians, God puts us, he fixes our gaze on Jesus, and then we have this continual mission drift that takes place where we slowly fall away each week. In fact, that's why we come in together and we confess our sins together as the church because we have veered from God's ways. We veered from God's mission, and we can admit that, but we wanna be God-centered. We want our gaze to be upon God in all that we do. And when we live in this place of a self-centered life, what happens is we live a small life, an inconsequential life, a life that looks more like a shanty than this glorious temple for God to dwell in. Because instead of keeping God at the center, we've put ourselves at the center. Now, the irony of this, the thing that we catch ourselves thinking is, is this. When, when we see the high calling to discipleship of following Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, we think, listen, God really wants a lot from me, and I just don't know if I can handle that kind of commitment. And I think that maybe, maybe if I just, maybe if I ditch God for a little bit, I'll actually be help, ha happier. I'll find a little bit more me time to give myself space and time and, and leisure for the things that I really love to enjoy, and that will just fulfill me a little bit. I can still do the God stuff part-time, but the other part-time, it's for me. Now, this is a lie straight from the mouth of the devil. This is false. That if you live your life for yourself, you will not reap a greater degree of happiness. Rather, you will find yourself being more and more unsatisfied you'll be left wanting because you are not capable of upholding. You are not meant to be the center of your own life. Now, this is what Haggai is saying here in verse six. He's acknowledging this case of, of when you drift into self-centeredness, you will find yourself more and more unsatisfied. Look at verse six here. You have sown much, and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, it's interesting here. The things that distract us, Haggai is actually putting his thumb on top of them. What's he talking about? You concern yourself with what food you're going to eat, with your job, what clothes you're going to wear. These are things that for a long time have been distracting people from the mission of God, your own little life that you're so focused on. And he says what happens here is you experience the curse of inflation. That's what it is. And it's something that I think we're become more and more familiar with in our, our day and age here. But this inflation where, look at what he said. He's, he's not saying that you don't have anything. He's not saying that you don't have clothes. He's not saying that you don't have food where there's like a, 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 a wasteland. He's saying you have this stuff, but it, it can't satisfy you. He's like, you, you've got the food, but you're never full. You've got the drink, you're never filled up. You've got the clothes, but you're never warm. You got the money, but it's like you put it into a bag with holes. It's just the, the things that you had cannot get you to where they had previously got you. That's what inflation is like. And if you listen to King Solomon 
And what he says in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is exactly what he's, the vanity of vanities, striving and toil under the sun. What good is it? It's, it's never enough if you are making it about yourself. You'll work hard, but you'll never see the results you're longing to see. Now, God could just say, well, have it your way. Good luck with that. But God is gracious God, and he's gracious even when he's firm, and even those times where he might give us a jab in the side. Oh, that one hurt. And that's exactly what God does here. He addresses this mission drift that the people of God in Jerusalem are experiencing through the prophetic provocation of Haggai. Now, this is how God tends to jolt his people. We see this. We've got the major prophets. We've got the minor prophets. We've got these people who have served as a mouthpiece for God that would call out on behalf of God. God would give them a word. They would speak that word. And typically, they tended to be unpopular with the general population. They'd speak out a hard word, this prophetic call. And that is how God still works today. God gives the church a prophetic word. Now, I'm not saying that we have prophets in the same way that we had Isaiah and Haggai and Zechariah in the church today. God is not adding to the canon of Scripture. However, God does have prophetic voices that are calling out the truth of Scripture that's already been revealed to God's people and calling people to conform once again to his word. So we can have great confidence today God still speaks to us. He has not left us alone to our own sinful, self-centered desires. He's provoking us through the prophetic word. And God uses various channels to provoke us out of our self-centeredness. Now, as you think about the scale, right, you start with the scale of responsibility. I take responsibility for myself. Well, one of the places where God starts to provoke us is in our daily reading of the scriptures. We've been committed as a church to feast to flourish at least a chapter a day. Grinding through God's word, opening up our ears to say, what does the Lord have to say to me today? So the word of God can provoke us in our self-centeredness. And in fact, all of the provocation that God brings through the prophetic word orbits around the scriptures. Whether it comes through your MC leader or your pastor or whoever it might be that is opening up the word of God to teach the people of God. It might come from your spouse. It might just be that comment your spouse made was the Lord trying to speak to you through that. How dare they? It might be that guy in your fight club that just put his finger on a besetting sin. He might be speaking prophetically to call you out of that pattern you found yourself in. Now, it's not just Dude, it's crazy because God doesn't need someone to have this high level of credibility, this high qualification to speak through them. And you see this in Balaam's donkey, that God spoke through a donkey to get the attention of his people. And so your kids might be provoking you, and that could be the Lord. That, That new Christian in your missional community God might be speaking through them. Or that unbeliever that says, wait a minute, I think I see some hypocrisy in your life. That might be the Lord provoking you. 
God can use any of these and all of these to give you that little prick to get your attention. And the attention that he's calling us to is what Haggai, he echoes twice, he says in verse five and verse seven, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Examine yourself. Now, this is a hard thing to call people into. Take a look at yourself, brother. Take a look at yourself, sister. Do you see where your life is detached from God? Do you see where you may have drifted into self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness? Do you see how you have forsaken God's mission for a lesser mission of your own? And and what Haggai actually tells us in verses 9 through 11 is that there is a a correlation between the the outcome and the investment. In verse 9, he says this, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, that's God speaking, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, check this out, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and of the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and all of their labors. What is he saying here? Verse nine, it says, you have disregarded God's house, so God is frustrating yours. Now, this might seem like God's being rude. I thought God was nice. But even when God crosses our will, even when God gives us that jab, he's still being gracious. It's a way of saying, don't get comfy here. That's not gonna bring what you want, what you think it's gonna give you. This will never satisfy the longings that you have. And so he sort of like pulls the plug on that lesser thing and he calls us to live into something much bigger, something much better, something much more fulfilling. This is what he's getting at here. The aim of prophetic provocation is repentance. It's to get you to consider your ways, to see how the life that you're building might be leading to the things that you don't like. Consider your ways. When you see them, turn from them. The aim of prophetic provocation is repentance, to turn away from self-centeredness and to turn to God. In verse 7, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He's calling people back to that which is of most importance, God and his mission. We have this tendency when we, when we feel that jab of prophetic provocation, when we feel that pinch, it's, it's oftentimes unpleasant. We might want to pull away from it, avoid it a little bit. But prophetic provocation is a necessity in the Christian life. Actually, your Christian life began with prophetic provocation. 
You see this when, when Paul is preaching the gospel to the Romans in Romans chapter three. He starts out by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Consider your ways. You see this when Paul's preaching in Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in sin. You were walking according to the patterns of this world. You were by nature a children of wrath. Ch consider your ways. And that prick leads us to self-examination if we were to be so humble as to receive it. And we might say, oh, dang, that is true. Dang it. God's right on this one. I see, I see what I'm doing there. I see, how I've, I see how I've shifted to my own way. Now, the question is, what do you do that when you feel that poke, when you feel that pinch, What do you do with that sense of guilt that sort of bubbles up when you, when you feel provoked in that regard? Well, a lot of different worldviews have different suggestions. Secularism, for example, says just ignore it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're totally fine. Keep, keep, you do you. Keep doing you. It'll work out in the end. Right? That, that's sort of the cadence. That's, that's the cry of secular ideologies. Just, man, just ignore it. It's not going to get you anywhere. Now, other religions might say, you got to work it off now. You did all this bad stuff. You, you got to tip the scales a little bit so, so your good deeds will outweigh your, your bad deeds and kind of even them out there. So you, you sign up for a life of, of penance, of, of trying to earn for yourself some kind of favor from God. But Christianity has a completely different way. Christianity says that Jesus dealt with that for you. That Jesus took your sin upon himself, the guilt, the shame, everything broken, all of the brokenness was placed upon him and nailed to the cross. And there at the cross, you find forgiveness for your sins. You find forgiveness for your self-centered tendencies. Through the blood of Christ, you find yourself a new creation. You've been made alive in Christ. You are now a child of God, a spirit of Christ in us saying, Abba, Father. See, all that happens when you receive this gift of God's grace by faith, that you are justified. The road to justification comes through prophetic provocation. But the same is true with sanctification. Sanct justification means you're standing with God as once and for all cemented because of the work of Christ. Sanctification is this ongoing process that happens throughout the entirety of your life where you're becoming more and more Christ-like. And the way that we become more Christ-like is through God's prophetic provocation. He jolts us back on mission. He jolts us back to a God-centered life. Because our tendency in the flesh, with the culture, with even the enemy tempting us, is to get stuck in the rut of self-obsession and missight of God. But because we have God as our heavenly father, he has this fatherly beckoning that brings us back to the family business. This, this, this beckoning of the father says, hey, come, come here. Be in my embrace. Live in my embrace. I'm gonna send you along the way to be about the family business of making Jesus known everywhere. Now, this is part of the Lord's discipline in our lives. This provocation, this prophetic provocation is part of God's discipline in our lives. And while it might be unpleasant in the, the beginning of it, 
and try to dodge it. We get defensive. We point the fingers. We take it as a personal attack. We try to ignore it. But when we're doing, we fall into the trap that Hebrews 12 tells us to avoid, to not lightly regard the discipline of our Heavenly Father, not to be weary of those pokes where he's trying to get our attention. See, this is a marker of a true Christian. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Christian, are you hearing the provocation from the Father? Are you willing to receive that from God so that he would help you to move into his mission, to be committed to him and the things that are most important in your life? Can you hear his voice through the scriptures, through the faithful people in your life that continually point us back to Jesus? Or are you shutting that down so you can keep on your own self-centered way? The grace of this is that God is calling you into something far more satisfying than a life that you build for yourself. Will you yield to the prophetic provocation? Will you consider your ways and where it's appropriate, where it's fitting to turn from your sin, turn from self-centeredness, and commit yourself anew to God and his work? I just think of how much damage the Lord can do with a church that is committed to something like that, blowing holes in the gates of hell. Now, to respond like this, it's not always the case. In fact, you can go one of two ways. You either receive it or you reject it. And, and sometimes we've seen in the past of Israel where they've rejected it, they've hardened their hearts towards God, they have not responded appropriately. But here, in this story of Ezra chapter four and five and Haggai, what they're showing us is there's this positive response to God's provocation. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all of the remnant of the people. So everybody, the leaders from the top down, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. These people are awakened from their self-drunk life and they are eager to go back to obeying the Lord. See, they, they can see it's not Haggai in and of himself that's bringing the provocation. God is speaking through this prophet. And so they say, we, we, we receive that, Lord. You're right, we have veered away. The mission has drifted. So they repent of their small mission of building a little life for themselves to get back to the work of building a home for God. They buy back into the mission. Why? Why did they do this? Why was this response what it was? It's because they feared the Lord. They had a reverence for God. They saw how beautiful and mighty and majestic he was. They say, who is like this God among the nations? There is no other like him. I mean, go back to the song that they sang at the beginning of Ezra as they come to, there's no one like God. Steadfast love to the generations of the people of Israel now and forever. No one is like this God. 
Who is like this God that brings us out of the pagan land of Babylon and gives us this new land, that gives us a second chance to rebuild a life that glorifies God, that we're recommitted to the mission of God. And this, this God is even more dazzling today when we view him in light of Jesus, who's delivered us not just from a pagan land, but from the grips of sin and death and the grave. Jesus, who's given us a cosmic inheritance that's far greater than anything that this world has to offer, where we finally find true satisfaction and to give us a sense of purpose that nothing else can give. There is no more noble calling than making Jesus known. And so it's in repentance that they are rejuvenated to get back to the work. And as they get back, as they obey the Lord, there's this promise that accompanies them in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. This is as if God's speaking right to his people. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. See, as people recommit themselves to God, as they return to God's mission, God reaffirms his presence with them. They've drifted, God hasn't. They've come back, God was there, and he's still there. And the same promise is there for us today as we live our lives on God's mission. Jesus says at the end of the commission, great commission, Matthew 28, behold, I am am with you until the end of the age. Church, this is our source of courage to press on in this high calling, this noble and hard and difficult task that we have to make disciples of Jesus. He's with us. He's strengthening us. He's encouraging us in the midst of discouragements that are being lobbed from other places. And so in light of this reality that Jesus is, in fact, with us, he's called us to this noble task. Let us recommit ourselves to the Lord. Let us get back to the work that matters the most. Repent from our selfish, self-centered tendencies and lay hold of the glory and the pleasure the Lord has when we devote our lives to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness and that you do not leave us on our own. You don't just wash your hands of us and say, all right, have it your way. You have this deep care for us that is in constant pursuit. And so would you, would you help us to see your prophetic provocation as part of your pursuit, Lord? Would you, would you help us to open our ears to you and know when it is that you are speaking to us, God. And that requires some discernment, that requires um, a reliance upon community to help us discern what the Lord is and isn't saying. But God, we ask that our ears would at least, our, our mindset would be, I'm expecting to hear from the Lord. So speak clearly to your servants. We are here to do your word. We are here to please you. For in Christ, we know that you are ultimately pleased and our, 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 our greatest pleasure is found in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.